Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday. I'm sorry about the ruffling. Today is Friday, February 12, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to commence with our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. This is entitled, Rescued from the Authority of Darkness, and of course it's part one. Colossae, or Kalasahi, as I might be tempted to pronounce it, according to the Greek pronunciation guide found in James Strong's Concordance. Colossae was a city of Phrygia on the Lycus River, one of the branches of the Mahiander, or Meander, and three miles from Mount Cadmus, which is over 8,000 feet high. Note that Mount Cadmus is named after the famous Phoenician, Cadmus the Phoenician, the progenitor of many of the Greeks, and their idol, Heracles, in legend anyway. Colossae stood at the head of a gorge where the two streams unite, 13 miles from Hierapolis and 10 from Laodicea or Laodicea. Colossae, which was situated along the great highway that crossed Anatolia from Ephesus to the Euphrates Valley, was mentioned by Herodotus, where he described it as being along the route of the Persian invasion of Greece by Xerxes, about 470 BC. It was also mentioned in Xenophon's Anabasis, where he described it as being along the route taken by Cyrus, when he marched against his brother, the Persian king, Artaxerxes II, around 401 BC. And of course, Cyrus, the brother of Artaxerxes II, who was a satrap of the western Persian provinces, was not Cyrus the Great. According to William Smith's Classical Dictionary of Greek and Roman Biography, Mythology, and Geography. Colossae was a city of Great Phrygia in the plain on the river Lycus. Once of great importance, citing Strabo and others, but so reduced by the rise of the neighboring cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis, that the later geographers do not even mention it, and it might have been forgotten but for its place in the early history of the Christian church. A fortress named Kone, or Konahi, was formed, probably by Justinian, on a precipitous hill eight miles south of Colossae, Colossae the position of which was not defensible. And in the course of the 8th century BC, altogether absorbed its population so that its name passed away. And I believe that our, um, 
our Bible dictionary has a mistake and has BC rather than AD. And the village near to its site bears the name Kone. While William Smith, whose dictionary was published in 1904, believed the site of ancient Colossae to have been eight miles north of Kone, the modern Kanos, K-H-O-N-O-S, another site has since been discovered three miles north of Kone, where the remains of the ancient Greek city of Colossae have been located. There have been found extensive ruins of an ancient city, large blocks of stone, foundations of buildings, and fragments of columns. For a long time, the ruins were known, but the site was not excavated. Recently, within the past 20 years, the site has been excavated, and many inscriptions and other discoveries have been made and published. While... Colossae seems to have been an important city in ancient times. By the time of the geographer Strabo, the city's Apamaya Kibatas, or as it was also called, Apamaya on the Meander, and Laodicea, which was on the Lycus River, were the largest cities in this part of Phrygia. Paul also mentioned Hierapolis, which was near to Laodicea, or Laodicea, as I would rather pronounce it from the Greek. And he mentioned Hierapolis in chapter 4 of this epistle. Laodicea was, at that time, the chief town of a league of cities to which Colossae and more than 20 other cities had belonged. Both Laodicea and Colossae were famous for their wool, and the people of Colossae derived great profits from their skill in dyeing wool. The upper valley of the Meander River was a sheep-feeding country, and in a lamentation for Tyre given by Ezekiel in chapter 27, as it reads in the Septuagint, there is a reference to wool from Miletus in verse 18. Miletus was the famous port city of ancient Caria, where the meander emptied into the sea. In Strabo's account of the area from book 12 of his geography, we read that above Phrygia Epictetus, towards the south is greater Phrygia, which leaves on the left Pessinus and the region of the Orchaeorchi and Lycaonia, and on the right, the Mahionians and Lydians and Carians. Now it must be said that to Strabo, above means inland, and he is looking from the south. In Epictetus are Phrygia Par Oria, as it is called, and the part of Phrygia that lies towards Pisidia, and the parts around Amorium and Eumenia and Sinada, and then Apamaya Kabatis, as it is called, and Laodicea, which are the two largest of the Phrygian cities. And in the neighborhood of these are situated towns, and 
And at this point, there is a lacuna in the text, and the translator suggests that it be filled with the words, places among others. And the towns, Aphrodisius, named after Aphrodite, the Greek idol, Colossae, Themisanium, Seneus, Metropolis, and Apollonius, but still farther away than these are Pelte, Tape, Eucarpia, and Lysias. Strabo's Geography, Book 12, Chapter 8, Paragraph 13. We are going to, when we post this presentation on the website at Christagenia later this evening, we are also going to post a video the video is made by the modern-day Turkish government, but it's really about Hierapolis and Aphrodisius, the town named after Aphrodite, and it's quite interesting and will give our listeners a good understanding of the topography of the area and some of its history. After describing Phrygia Paroraya, which actually means Phrygia along the mountains, which Strabo had said had a kind of mountainous ridge extending from the east towards the west, and which may have been a part of what Luke had called the upper coasts of Paul's journey through Galatia and Phrygia to go to Ephesus, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 19. A little further along, Strabo says, from (coughs) paragraph 15 of the same chapter, Apamaya is a great emporium of Asia, I mean Asia in the special sense of that term, and ranks second only to Ephesus. Now where Strabo had to qualify the word Asia, he means that Apamaya is really in a land that the Greeks formerly knew as Phrygia, but in the special sense of that term, he's referring to the Roman province of Asia, where this southern part of Phrygia was incorporated into Asia. Apamaya ranks second only to Ephesus, for it is a common entrepot, meaning a center of trade. For the merchandise from both Italy and Greece, Apamaya is situated near the outlets of the Marcius River, which flows through the middle of the city and has its sources in a city. It flows down to the suburbs and then, with violent and precipitate current, joins the Meander. The later receives also another river, the Orgus, and traverses a level country with an easy-going and sluggish stream. And then, having by now become a large river, the meander flows for a time through Phrygia, and then forms the boundary between Caria and Lydia at the plain of meander, as it is called, where its course is so exceedingly winding that everything winding is called meandering. So we get our word meandering from an ancient Greek river in Anatolia. And at last it flows through Carrier itself, which is occupied by the Ionians, and then empties between Miletus and Priene. It rises in a hill called Kalenahi, 
on which there is a city which bears the same name as the hill. And it was from Kelanahi that Antiochus Soter made the inhabitants move to the present city, Apamaya, the city which he named after his mother, Apama, who was the daughter of Artabasis and was given in marriage to Seleucus Nicator. And here is laid the scene of the myth of Olympus and of Mar... Mar Marcius, I'm sorry, and of the contest between Marcius and Apollo. Above is situated, uh, situated a lake which produces the reed that is suitable for the mouthpieces of pipes, and it is from this lake that pour the sources of both the Marcius and the Meander. Laodicea, though formerly small, grew large in our time and in that of our fathers, even though it had been damaged by siege in the time of Mithridates Eupator. However, it was the fertility of this territory and the prosperity of certain of its citizens that made it great. At first, Hieron, who left to the people an inheritance of more than 2,000 talents and adorned the city with many dedicated offerings. And later, Zeno the rhetorician and his son Polemon, the latter of whom, because of his bravery and honesty, was thought worthy even of a kingdom, at first by Antony and later by Augustus. The country around Laodicea produces sheep that are excellent not only for the softness of their wool, in which they surpass even the Malaysian wool, the wool of Miletus, but also for its raven-black color, so that the Laodiceans derive splendid revenue from it, as do also the neighboring Colossini, the people of Colossae, from the color which bears the same name. These are the Colossians, and the purplish or perhaps matter reddish wool, which they were famous for dyeing, was mentioned by Pliny in his natural history. So the people of Colossae were making purple or matter reddish, that's also described as rose reddish wool, and the people of Laodicea were dyeing their wool black and they were competing with each other ostensibly for sales of their wool. And here in the Capris River joins the Meander, as does also the Lycus, a river of good size, after which the city is called the Laodicea near Lycus. It should be Lycus in Greek and not Lycus, I'm sorry. Above the city lies Mount Cadmus, whence the Lycus flows, as does also another river of the same name as the mountain. But the Lycus flows underground for the most part, and then, after emerging to the surface, unites with the others, and Herodotus had much earlier made the same testimony thus indicating that the country is full of holes and subject to earthquakes for if any other country is subject to earthquakes Laodicea is and so is Carora in the neighboring country and that's from Strabo's geography gives us an idea of the status 
background and geography of both Laodicea and Colossae. And we're going to use that to understand some of the things which are said to these people later on. The river that flows underground was mentioned by Herodotus and here by Strabo. And it is true that for a long time the like this river did, was said to flow underground, but it does not anymore. And there is geological evidence that the structure through which the river flowed, the geological structure, the mountain or, or ridge or whatever it was, actually collapsed into the river in an earthquake and even changed its course. Apamaya is not mentioned in scripture. However, Laodicea is mentioned here in Paul's epistle to the Colossians. And Laodicea is also the home of one of the seven assemblies addressed in the early chapters of the revelation of Jesus Christ. But while these cities were in the land originally called Phrygia, and which the Greeks continued to call Phrygia, it is not very likely that many of the later inhabitants of the region were actually Phrygians. In early times, the Carians, who were Phoenicians, had a strong presence in the area, especially in the southeast, where Colossae was located, and it was close to the borders of ancient Caria. But by the end of the 8th century BC, the Carians had been conquered by the Ionians, and both Dorian and Ionian Greeks had long been establishing settlements throughout the region. This part of Phrygia was also close to the ancient kingdoms of Lydia and Pisidia. All of these areas had a very strong Greek presence long before the wars with the Persians. Phrygia itself was for the most part destroyed by the Cimmerians in the late 7th century BC, who had also ravaged and pillaged much of Lydia, Ionia, and the surrounding countries. After the Cimmerian invasions, the kingdom of Phrygia ceased to exist, and it never recovered as a political entity. Then, a century later, the lands of Phrygia and Lydia fell under the control of the Persians, and many Greek cities fell into Persian control with them. The Persians had conquered and destroyed the cities of the Lydians, and held the region from the time of Darius and Xerxes to the time of Alexander the Great. Colossae must have had a significant Persian presence during this period, as it was the city to which the Persian general Tissaphernes repaired after he was defeated by the Lacedaemonians in 396 BC, and in that same place he then lost his head to another Persian general, Tithrostes, on orders from the Persian king Artaxerxes II. This is recorded in Book 14 in Chapter 80 of Diodorus Siculus's Library of History. 
While near the close of the 3rd century BC, much of ancient Phrygia to the east was acquired by the Galatahi and was called after them Galatia. The southwestern parts of Phrygia, containing Colossae and Laodicea, remained under the control of the Seleucids, the Greek kings of Syria, and the Greek presence in the area only grew stronger. Likewise, the northwestern parts, including Mysia and the Troad, and along with Thrace, fell to Lysimachus after the death of Alexander. However, Mysia had also been inhabited by Aeolian Greeks for many centuries already. In the description of Laodicea, which we have just heard from Strabo, the Greek presence in that city is clear, and the growth of the region which he describes is attributed to Greeks. Upon the defeat of Antiochus called the Great by the Romans in 190 BC, this western region of ancient Phrygia containing Colossae, Laodicea, Apamia, and Hierapolis became a part of the Greek kingdom of Pergamos, for which reason it was called Phrygia Epictetus, meaning acquired Phrygia. After the death of Attalus III, it was then incorporated into the Roman province of Asia, like many of the other cities in the region. Colossae and Laodicea, cities with Greek names, had also had Greek characteristics. While the name Laodicea can, among other things, mean just people, the name Colossae must be derived from the Greek word Colossiahis, or, as we would say, Colossal, as in the colossal statue called the Colossus of Rhodes. So at this time, in the first century, Colossae was a part of Roman Asia. However, where he wrote of Galatia, Luke had used the ancient Greek names for the various lands incorporated by the Romans into Galatia, distinguishing that part of the Roman province of Galatia inhabited by the Galatahi, which was properly Galatia, from the parts inhabited by the Lycaonians, which he called after the ancient name Lycaonia in Acts chapter 14. So where the Roman provinces, I'm sorry, so where Luke mentions Phrygia, he is more than likely distinguishing the ancient lands of Phrygia apart from the Roman provinces of Asia or Galatia, as some regions of ancient Phrygia became part of each province. Phrygia never had a province of its own. It was split into the provinces of Asia and Galatia. So it is likely, where Luke mentions Paul's travels through Phrygia, that he is including cities such as Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. But ancient Phrygia covered a large area, and it is not certain that Paul had ever visited these cities, 
or that he had traveled through this part of Phrygia, as we shall see while we present the beginning of this epistle to the Colossians. Paul had traveled on foot through Phrygia and Galatia on two occasions. The first is recorded in Acts chapter 16, as Paul was traveling from east to west through Anatolia, starting from Antioch in Syria and passing through Cilicia. There it is clear that where Luke mentioned Phrygia, he referred to the northern part of the ancient kingdom, since the apostles were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, and were instead being led to Macedonia. Doing that, it would have been necessary to go north, through northwest Phrygia, where they passed through Mysia, which was adjacent to the Troad. Therefore, on his first journey through Phrygia, Paul did not go through the area of Phrygia where Colossae and Laodicea were located. The second time that Paul is described as going through Galatia and Phrygia, he is also traversing Anatolia on foot after leaving Antioch in Syria, as it is described in Acts chapter 18. But here, Luke says that Paul had passed through the upper coasts en route to Ephesus. The text of Acts says of Paul in Antioch that, and spending some time, he departed, passing through successively the land of Galatia and Phrygia, confirming all of the students in Acts 18. And then, in the beginning of Acts 19, it says that Paul had passed through the highlands to come down into Ephesus. These highlands, mentioned by Luke, included Phrygia par Oriah, Phrygia par Oriah, the part of Phrygia that Strabo describes as consisting of mountains which span from east to west. Then it is possible that in neither of his journeys through Phrygia did Paul visit Colossae or Laodicea. Here, in Colossians chapters 2 and 4, we will see evidence that perhaps Paul never did actually visit either Colossae or Laodicea in person. In fact, reading this epistle, we doubt that he did. Several times in Paul's epistle to the Philippians, we see him mention a fellow worker with the name Epaphroditus. In reference to the Philippians, Paul had called this Epaphroditus your apostle in Philippians 2.25. So Epaphroditus must have been especially selected by the Philippians to bear their message to Paul in Rome. Here we see a man named Epaphras who is also mentioned in another epistle written at this same time, which is the epistle to Philemon. While we did not mention this in our presentation of the epistle to the Philippians, it is evident that Epaphras and Epaphroditus are references to the same man. 
since even James Strong, in his concordance, informs us that the word Epaphras is only a contraction of the word Epaphroditus. <clears throat> so we learn here that Epaphras, who is almost certainly Epaphroditus, is a native of Colossae, wherein Colossians 4.12, Paul says in his salutation, that Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. In verse 9 of that same chapter, we learn that Onesimus, the slave on whose behalf Paul had written the epistle to Philemon, was also a Colossian, and therefore Philemon was probably a Colossian. There we are also informed that Tychicus, who was evidently an Ephesian, together with Philemon, had delivered this epistle to the Colossians, and therefore they also must have delivered the epistle to Philemon at this same time since Onesimus was an escaped slave of Philemon, and in that letter Paul begs for his freedom. We have asserted that these last epistles written by Paul were written in 61, or perhaps in early 62 AD. Around the same time, there was a great earthquake in the area, which is said to have decimated the cities of Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. However, Colossae was supposedly hit the hardest, and as a result, the city was said by Eusebius to have been reduced to a small village. According to some sources, the chronicles of Eusebius date the earthquake to the tenth year of Nero or 63 to 64 AD. In book 14 of the Annals of Imperial Rome, the historian Tacitus wrote that in the Asian province, one of its famous cities, Laodicea, was destroyed by an earthquake in this year and rebuilt from its own resources without any subvention or without any help from Rome. Evidently, Hierapolis was also destroyed and then rebuilt, but the historian does not mention that city. Laodicea was only 10 miles from Colossae, and Hierapolis was near to Laodicea, 13 miles from Colossae. Tacitus was writing about a period no later than the seventh year of Nero, or 60 to 61 AD, and he says that the uprising of the Iceni in Britain, which is also generally dated to 60 or 61 AD, happened in the following year. This epistle attests that Epaphras had come to Paul with a report from Colossae, and Paul makes no mention of any earthquake in his return epistle to the Colossians. But if the earthquake had already occurred, we may not 
imagine how he avoided making such a mention unless the earthquake occurred in 60 AD or perhaps even in 59. If Tacitus is correct, then perhaps Paul's letter was written either before the earthquake occurred in 61 or in 62, two years after the earthquake occurred. If it was two years after, then Paul would have no, no reason to mention the earthquake. The people killed in the earthquake would have been dead probably before Epaphras converted any of the Colossians to Christianity. Why would Paul mention the earthquake? But if Eusebius is correct, these epistles may have been written a little later, as late as the spring of 62 AD, with all certainty. It seems to be, and, and the earthquake happened after that, in 63 or 64. It seems to be quite unlikely. With the chronology that we developed in our presentation of the book of Acts, and with what we could deduce from the times and markers that Luke provides for us there, that these letters could have been written earlier than 61 AD. Paul's trial before Nero had already occurred, and Luke informed us that Paul was in Rome for two years. So if the trial happened so soon after Paul arrived in Rome in the spring of 60 AD, then we would have to imagine that Paul was left to wait for a decision from Nero and to be executed nearly two years after his trial. Of course, that may be possible, but does not seem plausible. For this reason, we have imagined the trial to have occurred sometime in 61 AD, after which the second epistle to Timothy was written, and Timothy arrived to be with Paul. Then the last of his known epistles were written, including this one, and that Paul was executed in 62 AD after two years of house arrest in Rome. As Luke had attested, Paul was in Rome for two years, and we can deduce the sequence of events, but of course we could be wrong about the details of the timing of the events within the two-year period since we are wanting so much information. However, esteeming that the earthquake was in 59 AD is not out of line with Tacitus, and Paul would have no reason to mention it in his epistle to the Colossians. <clears throat> With this we will begin our presentation of the epistle of Paul to the Colossians. Paul, ambassador of Christ Yahshua by the will of Yahweh, and Timotheus the brother, to those in Colossahia, holy and faithful brethren, among the number of the anointed, favor to you and peace from Yahweh our Father and Prince Yahshua Christ. Of course the phrase among the 
number of the anointed, may have been simplistically rendered in Christ, as most translations have done. Some manuscripts interpolate the word Jesus, for Jesus, into the text. So we would have to write, Holy and faithful brethren in Christ, in Jesus Christ, I'm sorry. As we had explained at length while presenting our epistle to the Philippians, which was evidently written a short time before this epistle, Paul had written his second epistle to Timothy from Rome, asking the young apostle to join him. After Timothy arrived, the epistles to the Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were all written. Chronologically, these are the last of Paul's surviving epistles. As we will see here later, a fourth epistle was also written at this time, and it was addressed to the Laodiceans, which was apparently lost at an early time, and its contents are completely unknown to us. The King James Version has Paul addressing this epistle to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. However, here, the Greek words, hakius and pistis, are both adjectives modifying the noun for brethren. They refer to one and the same group of individuals, where in the King James translation, the words may be mistaken as describing two different groups. The saints are defined in scripture as those children of Israel who were sanctified by Yahweh their God, as it says in Psalm 37. For Yahweh loves judgment and forsakes not his saints, they are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. Likewise, we read in chapter 27 of the Gospel of Matthew, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. If those saints slept before the crucifixion and arose before the resurrection, then they certainly had not yet heard the gospel of Christ, but they were saints nevertheless, simply because they were of the children of Israel. Continuing with verse 3, We are grateful to Yahweh, the Father of our Prince, Yahshua Christ, at all times praying for you, hearing of your faith in Christ Yahshua, and that love which you have for all the saints. By which you are storing up expectation for yourselves in the heavens, which you heard beforehand, in the word of the truth of the good message which is coming to you, and just as among all the society it is bearing fruit and growing, Likewise, also among you from that day in which you heard and acknowledged the favor of Yahweh in truth. Here Paul professes that expectation is stored up in heaven by Christians who exhibit a love for all the saints. The expectation must 
must be a reference to that treasure in heaven, which Christians may accumulate by caring for one another and seeking to build the kingdom of God in this life. Paul referred to this treasure in Philippians chapter 3, where he said that I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He referred to it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he said, Know ye not that they which run a race run all, but one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. The King James Version has verse 6 to read here concerning the gospel, which is coming to you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it does also in you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. And here we see that Paul had esteemed the gospel to have already been preached in all the world. Just as Luke had used the term world where he said that Caesar decreed that all the world should be taxed. In Luke chapter 2, all the world referred to the world of the Greeks and Romans and not to the planet and all of the aliens that it contains. Here Paul also says that the Colossians had acknowledged the favor of Yahweh, or, as the King James Version has it, they knew the grace of God. The Greek word ginosko, Strong's 1097, by itself is to know. But here the word is epigenosko, Strong's 1921, and it has a stronger meaning to look upon, to witness, to observe, to recognize, or to acknowledge. They witnessed the favor of Yahweh, or they acknowledged the favor of Yahweh. In the Old Testament prophets, the children of Israel, having been condemned by the law, were promised that favor or grace in place of their condemnation. In Jeremiah chapter 31 we read that the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. The promise of grace relates only to the circumstances of the punishment and mercy which Yahweh God had promised to the children of Israel and all other peoples are outside of that context having no part in it and for them there is no possible application for it since they were never under the law. Here Paul informs us that the Colossians had received the gospel, which is the message to Israel of the grace of God which they were receiving, in this instance from Epaphras. Just as, as you have learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondman, who is a trusted servant of the anointed on our behalf, and some manuscripts have on your behalf who also disclosed to us your love in spirit or in the spirit 
as we, in our translation, neglected to add the article, which is not found in the Greek. Epaphras is only mentioned here and in the epistle to Philemon. As we have already mentioned, we esteem him to be the same as Epaphroditus, who by that name is mentioned only in the epistle to the Philippians. In much the same manner, Silas was more fully referred to as Silvanus, and Prisca as Priscilla. We are informed in Colossians chapter 4 that Epaphras is a Colossian, and ostensibly he is the first to have preached the gospel to the Colossians, as Paul informs us here. Here it is evident, as we shall also see in chapters 2 and 4 of this epistle, that Paul of Tarsus did not himself bring the gospel of Christ to the Colossians, but rather it was Epaphras who first brought it to them, and then he had reported their acceptance of the gospel back to Paul. This is substantiated in Colossians chapter 2, where Paul says to them, in verse 1, For I wish you to know that as great a struggle as I have for you and those in Laodicea, and as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. And with that, we may also be led to understand that neither had Paul been to Laodicea, because neither had they seen his face in the flesh. So here, in one of the last surviving substantial letters of his ministry, Paul is seeing the fruits of his own labors, that others are bringing the gospel to places where he himself could not. And he says in verse 9, For this reason also we, from the day in which we heard, do not cease from praying and requesting on your behalf that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The example Paul sets here is that once our brethren who are in the world hear and accept the reconciliation to God which is in Christ, that we pray that they are strengthened and remain steadfast in their newly found belief, which is accomplished through the acquisition of knowledge and understanding. Where Paul mentions spiritual wisdom, we must understand that the law is spiritual. So spiritual wisdom comes from studying the word of God. As David is recorded as having said to his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, Now my son, Yahweh be with thee, and prosper thou, and build the house of Yahweh thy God, as he has said of thee, only Yahweh give thee wisdom and understanding, and give thee charge concerning Israel, that thou may keep the law of Yahweh thy God. Then shalt thou prosper, if thou takest heed to fulfill the statutes and judgments which Yahweh charged Moses with concerning Israel. Be strong and of good courage. Dread not nor be dismayed. So where Paul speaks of wisdom,
and of the acquiring of wisdom and understanding, he certainly means that it comes from the scripture. To walk worthily of the prince in all complacence, in every good deed bearing fruit and growing in the knowledge of Yahweh. The knowledge of reconciliation in Christ leads one to understand the need for obedience to Christ. Complacence is a willingness or an inclination to comply or to be obedient. This complacence then leads the Christian to voluntarily perform deeds that produce good fruit edification and sustenance both spiritual and temporal for one's Christian brethren as Christ had said if any man will come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me as Christ had also said if you love me keep my commandments and we see that this message is consistent throughout all of Paul's epistles. This is the obedience to the faith among all nations, which Paul had mentioned in Romans chapter 1, and the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Yahshua Christ, which Peter described in his first epistle where he had explained that such obedience was the call for them who were elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, which also refers to the children of Israel. And Paul continues in verse 11 of this first chapter of Colossians. With all power being strengthened according to the might of his honor for all endurance and long-suffering with joy. The words with joy may just as well belong to the beginning of the sentence which follows. Nevertheless, it is God who strengthens us when we are obedient to him as we read in Psalm 147. Yahweh takes pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. Praise Yahweh, O Jerusalem. Praise thy God, O Zion. For he has strengthened the bars of thy gates. He has blessed thy children within thee, because he takes pleasure in them that fear him. In the words, with joy, may have been intended to precede the text in verse 12. Being thankful to the Father, who qualifies us for that share of the inheritance of the saints in the light, who has rescued us from the authority of darkness, and instead gave us, or perhaps, and has transferred us, into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption, the dismissal of errors or sins. Several late Greek manuscripts of the majority text had the words, through His blood, after the word for redemption in verse 14. 
However, none of those are dated prior to the 9th century, and the words are not found in any earlier Greek manuscripts, although they do appear in the King James Version. The words do, however, appear in certain earlier Latin and Syriac manuscripts. Where the same phrase appears in Ephesians 1.7, the words are found in all surviving manuscripts. Variations such as this do not impact any particular doctrine, but they are nevertheless quite significant because we see how few and late were the manuscripts from which the King James was translated, and it has many significant interpolations. The share of the inheritance of the saints in the light is a promise for those who were already promised to be rescued from darkness. The prophet Micah speaking of the sin of the ancient children of Israel in chapters 6 and 7 of his prophecy had written in part from the last verse of chapter 6 for the statutes of Omri are kept rather than the laws of Yahweh and all the works of the house of Ahab and ye walk in their counsels that I should make thee a desolation and the inhabitants thereof a hissing Therefore ye shall bear the reproach of my people. And on to verse 2 of chapter 7. The good man is perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with the net. For the son dishonoreth the father, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are of his own house. We see later in the Gospel that Christ had warned that these same things would befall those who were turning to him. Micah continues in verse 7, Therefore I will look unto Yahweh, I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I shall fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, Yahweh shall be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of Yahweh, because I have sinned against him, until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness. The prophet is speaking for the children of Israel, and because they had transgressed from their God, they would be removed from his light and set in darkness in the time of their captivity. Micah portrays the pious as looking towards their God once again, that they may see the light. Thus, in Isaiah chapter 5, we read, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The prophet Isaiah speaks again concerning those same children of Israel in chapter 9 of his 
prophecy. And he says, in part, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them the light has shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation, and not increase the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So it is prophesied that those walking in darkness are a nation greatly multiplied, but which had no joy, and to them a great light is offered. Isaiah continues by relating this darkness to a yoke representing captivity. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise, and garments rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. Although the children of Israel would be freed from their yoke, they would suffer a great battle in order to attain that freedom. Isaiah continues by announcing the coming of their Savior. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will perform this. The interpretation of the prophecy is ascertained in the verse of Isaiah which follows, where he says in verse 8, Yahweh sent a word unto Jacob, and it is lighted upon Israel. Now the words of Isaiah had an apparent immediate fulfillment as Israel was temporarily delivered from the Syrians. But there was also a meaning which far exceeded the immediate events. It transcended those events. As in Isaiah chapter 7, Israel was already promised destruction and captivity. Where Isaiah had before said, and within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it not be a people. While Isaiah foresaw the light offered to the children of Israel, that light did not come until the advent of the Christ, of whom the Apostle John had said, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, in reference to Christ, whom he described as the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So as the children of Israel were taken into captivity by the Assyrians, Isaiah looked to a future time when the blind would be made to see and brought out of darkness, as he wrote in chapter 29, And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The meek also shall increase their joy in Yahweh, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Christ is the Holy One of Israel, and He was the Word made flesh. Therefore only with Him do the deaf hear the words of the book. We see another promise 
that the captive children of Israel would be brought out of darkness and into the light. And another messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the nations. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he shall not break, and the smoking flax he shall not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has set judgment in the earth, and the isle shall await for his law. Thus saith Yahweh God, He that created the heavens, and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth, and that which comes out of it. He that gives breath to the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and will give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the nations, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not, and I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them, and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them, and will not forsake them. And on to verse 18 of the chapter. Hear ye deaf, and look ye blind, that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect, and blind as Yahweh's servant? Seeing many things, but thou observest not, opening the ears, but he heareth not. Yahweh is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. But this, referring to the children of Israel, but this is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes. They are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey and none delivereth. For a spoil and none saith restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will hearken and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to the robbers? Did not Yahweh, he against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient unto his law. Therefore he has poured upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle. And it has set him on fire round about. Yet he knew not, and it burned him, and he laid it not to heart. And as Isaiah chapter 43 continues, we see the entire purpose of all of these warnings of punishment and promises. But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. The balance of the prophecy of Isaiah throughout all the chapters which follow 
is filled with analogies depicting the children of Israel in darkness who were to be called into the light of their Messiah for their salvation. So where Paul has told the Colossians that they had a share of the inheritance of the saints in the light, that they had been rescued from the authority of darkness, and that they had been that they have redemption, the dismissal of sins. None of this is relevant unless the Colossians, to whom he writes, are descended from those same children of Israel who were sent forth into captivity for their disobedience in the Old Testament. As it says in Psalm 147, He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. If these Colossians were not at one time under the law, they would have no sin. Yet Paul professes here in verse 14 that they had been granted the dismissal of their sins. Paul must have known that these Colossians were indeed descended from the ancient children of Israel, just as he told the Galatians that the law was their schoolmaster to bring them to Christ, and they too had descended from the ancient Israelites. The ancient children of Israel praised Yahweh that the other nations were not given his law and that they alone had known them. On the other hand, when they themselves had transgressed his law, they alone were punished for their transgression and the other nations are used as the method of punishment. As Yahweh had proclaimed through Isaiah where he said, for example, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, and the staff in their hand is my indignation. So in Amos, the word of Yahweh says to the children of Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. In turn, Yahweh has destroyed every nation which he had used as a scourge for which to punish Israel. And the children of Israel have that same promise today where they await a future gathering in Christ. And while it is also mentioned elsewhere, it says in Jeremiah chapter 30, Thus speaketh Yahweh God of Israel, saying, Write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. For lo, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will bring again the captivity of my people, Israel and Judah, saith Yahweh, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. And these are the words that Yahweh spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith Yahweh, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not a peace. Ask ye now, and see whether a man does travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. 
For it shall come to pass in that day, a day we must still await, that Yahweh of hosts saith that I will break his yoke from off thy neck, and I will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. But they shall serve Yahweh their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Therefore fear not, O Jacob my servant, saith Yahweh, neither be dismayed, O Israel. For lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. In the Gospel of Luke, we read from the account of the seizure of Christ leading up to the crucifixion, where it says in chapter 22, Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves? When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then took they him, and led him, and brought him to the high priest's house, and Peter followed afar off. Darkness is rebellion against God, and all of the enemies of God remain in it. The children of Israel became captives to the enemies of God when they too rebelled against him and departed from his law. In the Gospel of Christ, only the children of Israel are given the opportunity to emerge from that darkness and into his light as it is professed in the prophets. Speaking of the nation of Israel as the wife of Yahweh and individuals as the children of the nation, the word of God says in Isaiah chapter 50, Thus saith Yahweh, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all, that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink, because there is no water, and die for thirst. The purpose of Christ is to be that Redeemer and that Deliverer. And therefore it says later in that same chapter in yet another Messianic prophecy and a dialogue attributed to the Messiah. Yahweh God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For Yahweh God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint. And I know 
that I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, Yahweh God will help me, and who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they shall all wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. Who is among you that fears Yahweh, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? A rhetorical question. Anyone who fears Yahweh and does obey the voice of his servant will not walk in darkness and will have light. Let him trust in the name of Yahweh and stay upon his God. Behold, all ye that kindle a fire, and compass yourselves about with sparks, walk in the light of your fire, and in the sparks that you have kindled, this shall you have of my hand, you shall lie down in sorrow. And that last passage in verse 11 is a reference to those who pretend to light their own way. And the point is that in Christ no man walks in darkness. So we see in the words of Christ in John chapter 12 the fulfillment of these things described. Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walks in darkness knows not where he goes. I am come a light into the world that whosoever believes on me should not abide in darkness. Once Christians understand the truth concerning the authority of darkness, they are free from it, so long as they separate themselves from the sins of the world. Describing the enemies of Christ, who were of the authority of darkness, the Apostle Jude called them raging waves of the sea, foaming out of their own shame wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. There are people here on earth who cannot repent. The blackness of darkness forever is already reserved to them. Likewise, Peter had said, these are the spots in our feasts of charity. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with the tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. In those same epistles, both Peter and Jude associate those same enemies of Christ with the fallen angels of Genesis, who attempted to corrupt the Adamic race at the beginning, and who are also bound in chains of darkness, awaiting not salvation, but destruction. This is the darkness into which the children of Israel had sold themselves in sin, and from which the children of Israel, therefore, required a Savior. Thus we read in the purpose of the Messiah, as it was expressed by Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, Blessed be Yahweh God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies, and from the hand of all that hate us, 
to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. To give knowledge of salvation, what Paul had just told these Colossians that they had received, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of God, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. This is exactly what Paul had just told these Colossians that they had received. Throughout our presentations of these epistles of Paul, we have many times now discussed this same theme in different ways. That is because Paul himself has persistently described this same theme in different ways. There is no end to the explanation of this topic because this is the Bible and this is the Word of God. This is covenant theology, which is the only valid theology. From Genesis to Moses to David to Isaiah and the prophets, then to Yahshua and then to Paul, and then back to Yahshua again in the Revelation. Because only God could have the last word in the matter. The message is the same. Out of all the world's races and nations, Yahweh has chosen the children of Israel. The children of Israel were put off in their disobedience, and Yahweh will punish them until they choose to be obedient, returning to Him in Christ. There is no other choice, and those who resist only prolong the days of their punishment. This is the state of the white race today who for the most part are the descendants of the ancient children of Israel. The universal churches completely ignore this message, which is the entire theme and reason for the scriptures. Doing so, they attempt to make a mockery of God, but God will not be mocked. We will continue here in part two of this presentation next week, where Paul professed to these Colossians that Yahshua Christ is God. As Yahweh had proclaimed in Isaiah, I, Yahweh, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.